0: Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Richard Hofstadter's very important essay titled The Paranoid Style of American Politics, which is super important, once again, for conspiracy theory research. And as you can see, I'm not doing a Foucault episode because I'm going to save those for the new year. After this episode, I'm going to take a couple weeks to relax, or ostensibly relax. And then after that, I'll come back with some fresh, fresh Foucault stuff at the his lectures at the Collège de France, which is gonna be great, it's gonna be a good time. So be sure to come back and check those out. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can go see 300 episodes I already have up, a little more than that. uh, If you wanna see episodes I release every week, sometimes twice a week, be sure to subscribe. You can like the videos, that'll help me out a lot. You can tell your friends, that'll help me out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. Links for all of these things in the description. And you can follow me on Instagram at Theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want to see mostly pictures of my cats, which could be fun. They're cute. So, this essay is right in my wheelhouse because my own work deals pretty much exclusively with conspiracy theories. So, this is a pretty important essay for me. But this came out just a couple years after Popper's The Conspiracy Theory of Society that I covered last week. So, this came out in the early 60s as well. And this was Hofstadter's effort to think about why, in American history, there has often been recourse to explain very complicated events and phenomena by ascribing a conspiratorial intent behind them. That is to say that we can explain why certain things are happening because there are these conspirators out there that are trying to screw us over, that are trying to take advantage of us. Now, when he was writing this, he was thinking right off the bat about right-wingers in the american senate specifically joseph mccarthy who who was there just before him Uh, not before him but in the senate about a decade earlier and mccarthy we'll talk about a little bit more but was a paranoid figure to put it lightly however hofstadter is clear that this is not specifically a right-wing or left-wing phenomenon in fact many years after Hofstadter, well into the 21st century, studies would go on to show that conspiracy thinking and conspiracy theories are not reserved for any political affiliation. The content and substance of conspiracy theories from people who have a right-wing affiliation are gonna be different than those of a left-wing affiliation, but the very use of conspiracy theories is not reserved for either. The literature also seems to say that the same thing applies across genders, where it seems as though there's a pretty equal distribution of conspiracy thinking and theorizing across genders. Moreover, maybe one of the more interesting claims is that, or discoveries, uh, is that conspiracy thinking hasn't really been on the rise, despite the internet, despite all of the negative effects we're seeing about it. In fact, the study seems to show, at least according to one study that was redone uh, many decades later uh, by Joseph Isinski and Joseph Parent, that showed that conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking seemed to spike around the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th to the 20th century, and also in the mid 20th century. Those were actual spikes in conspiracy thinking in the prevalence of conspiracy theories that we do not see necessarily continue to today. And just to riff on this a little more, just briefly, one of the possible explanations for that is that although the internet that facilitates communication, it also facilitates the distribution of Non conspiracy theory type thinking. So while platforms certainly benefit off of bombastic, sensationalized headlines and clickbait, conspiracy theories certainly uh, fit those criteria. There seems to still not necessarily be an increase in conspiracy thinking on the whole, which doesn't mean that it's not still a problem. Anyways, that was my little brief tangent, just in case you wanted to, you were curious about any of that stuff. Now, What Hofstadter is interested in showing is that there seems to be what he calls a paranoid style across the United States' history within American politics that just seems to like to attribute very complicated phenomena to conspiratorial actors who are intent on destroying America or of destroying a certain political party or of destroying a certain political candidate. Some of the characteristic qualities or some of the characteristics of this paranoid style Are heated exaggeration, suspicion, and conspiratorial thinking. So he qualifies that this has more to do with the form of this style than with the actual substance. And the reason that he says this is that it assumes a certain kind of form or certain style in the way that these ideas are being delivered. So his point is not to say that any one uh, conspiracy theory is just wrong just because it's a conspiracy theory. He's saying instead, that there was a specific way in which conspiracy theories, in the way that he's criticizing them as part of a paranoid style, were being conveyed that he has a problem with, where there was no consideration of any alternatives. And often these ideas would just be spread with insistence, without any kind of evidential merit, without any claim or any justification for belief in that thing, where you know it would just be said loudly, and that would be taken as a legitimating factor or a legitimizer to the claim itself. So specifically, he pays attention to Joseph McCarthy, who in 1951 tried to suggest that many of his party's defeats were due to the fact that there were people high up in government that were secretly pulling the strings. What we see today is instead of that narrative, we have the narrative that there's this deep state that's controlling everything, that deep within government, is an allegiance, an alliance of coordinated people that are trying to disenfranchise in the, you know, when we think about the deep state, trying to disenfranchise Trump, trying to dif- disenfranchise the Republican party and all of Trump's supporters. And in McCarthy's speech, one of his many speeches, he suggests that this is the only way to account for their perpetual defeats, because he says he almost attributes it to odds to say that if it were purely up to odds, They would have won by now. So there must be something else going on, and of course this is a a fallacy. I mean, you could walk into a casino and think that eventually you're going to roll red at a roulette table, but that might not happen the whole night and you've suddenly lost thousands of dollars. It's just, odds can just work that way, they can just be totally unpredictable, they can just completely defy everything we know about chance and probability. But in any case, it gives people solace to be able to attribute very complicated things, maybe things that are only attributable really to chance, try to say that no, there is intent behind it. There are real people who are pulling the strings here and that's a lot more comforting than thinking that the universe is just aligned against you or the odds are just aligned against you and they seem to be aligned against you perpetually. And the same thing we saw in the 2020 election after Trump had lost. The only way that could have happened is if they cheated. The only way that could have happened is if they rigged the voting machines. The only way that could have happened is if they manipulated votes in some other way, you know, and the list goes on and on. And very much like we talked about last week, and if you didn't listen to that, it's not totally relevant, but very much like we talked about last week with Karl Popper, is that people who peddle conspiracy theories often do so to deflect from the fact that they themselves are trying to conduct a conspiracy. So in the case of, like, Trump, spreading conspiracy theories that the Democratic Party had secretly uh, rigged the election was just a way for Trump to deflect from the fact that he was organizing, very much organizing, a coup that would be conducted finally on January 6th, essentially inciting a riot of people of his supporters, which is very much a conspiracy, <laughs> just unfolding that everybody saw, or I should say, allegedly. A conspiracy allegedly. Hasn't been proven yet, right? Anyways, I think you get my point. Back to Hofstadter, he's not just focused on McCarthy in the mid 20th century. He jumps back much earlier to the late 19th century. Specifically, he points to an example from 1895, where there were these claims that European big shots were trying to control global gold supplies so that they could control the price of gold then he presents another example from the mid 19th century from 1855 a texas newspaper that tried to say that the catholic church was in league with european monarchs to try to overthrow the protestant way of life within the united states and this was a very popular idea that the roman catholic church was trying to overthrow government within the United States. And it even went so far as to say that they were trying to recruit indigenous people in order to fight against the American government. Now again, this serves a very useful function for people who want to grab or maintain power. Because if they're able to conjure up an enemy that is as large as the Roman Catholic Church and as powerful as European monarchs, What they are effectively doing is finding a way to justify their own growth to that level that they have to mount a defense in order to meet that potential threat so really the justification for their growth comes from their own imagination and you know the sky's the limit they could think of anything and then that could serve the purpose of them gaining the type of power that would make them the subject of conspiracy theories really i mean it's just they were just gaining way too much power too quickly. It seems as though that would have been conducted through a conspiracy. So some big targets of conspiracy thinking in the paranoid style within American politics and American history have been the Illuminati and the Masons and then the Jesuits. So the Americans feared the Illuminati or Illuminism, Illumism, and Masonry at the end of the 18th century because they believed that the ideas coming out of Illuminism were going to undo the fabric of American society that viewed itself as being fairly traditional and it feared that the anti-religious sentiment coming out of the Illuminati movement, which for those that don't know, it was largely a, you know, a rationalist movement, rationalist quote-unquote, that sought to spread enlightenment ideals and to highly religious Americans this was concerning. Moreover, it motivated concern about Jeffersonian democracy because The federalists didn't necessarily want this is these new democratic or democracy-like ideas coming in these those being spread by jefferson and so illumism human rights everything attached to it enlightenment all of these were imbued with negative qualities within the american imagination in order to stir fear of them to make it seem as though they were deplorable disgusting unsavory they were associated with sensuality with depravity with femininity which was just a very clever way to stir that fear, to make people not want these, uh, these ideas to infiltrate American borders. Now this was largely a Northeastern phenomenon in the United States, specifically, you know, we're talking about Jefferson democracy as well, like Jefferson ostensibly representing such beliefs. This was really thinking like Pennsylvania, Uh, New York, you know, this kind of area of the United States. And it would be a few decades later before such ideas gained much broader traction with the anti-Masonry movement or fear of the Masons. And this had a lot to do similarly with the Illuminati, but people lost, I guess, they stopped using that as uh, a way to justify their fear of those values and those beliefs. But they shifted their focus onto to masonry because they believed that there were these people within government that had way too much power than they should have there were people even outside of government that were secretly pulling the strings on american institutions be they banking institutions or academic institutions and so on and it was believed that the masons were doing this and the masons were a group they still are a group that have their own rites and rituals and practices and secret handshakes and all that like any Simpsons fans would know the Stonecutters. They have all these types of rituals and so they make an easy scapegoat to be able to identify and associate with anything that was that is seen as inexplicable within American politics or within American institutional life. Of course, it can be attributed to this group over there because they're all secret, they're, they're all acting um, shady. They must be the culprit. And some would even go so far as to say that the Masons were created by Satan. And this brings us into the other big threat that I elucidated a bit upon earlier, and that is fear of the Jesuits and fear of Catholicism. So there was fear that the Catholic Church was trying to send immigrants to the United States, largely, I I assume this was targeted against Irish immigrants, uh, to send immigrants to skew the vote or to overthrow the American way of life, which we certainly hear a lot of, this kind of rhetoric, this fear of immigrants, very much within the United States, well into the 21st century. And there was fear that priests were sacrificing babies and really wacky stuff, ways to justify animosity towards this other faith, that is the Catholic faith. Now what all of these conspiracy theories have in common, that is the just the few I've mentioned from the 19th century from much before Hofstadter, is that they felt like their way of life, their values were being attacked from the outside. Largely like something was coming to America that was going to undo all the good stuff they believe they had. Now in Hofstadter's time, the type of paranoid style he's referring to, or it's the same kind, but he's he's identifying that there's a shift. And the shift is that these people largely feel dispossessed. They feel alienated from the American way of life to them. The conspiracy has already occurred. The government has been taken over. All the institutions have been taken over. They're just liberal, woke institutions uh, trying to spread identity politics or whatever. At the time, those weren't the concerns, but I'm making it relevant. But there was belief that these institutions were already doomed, and it was the job then not to defend the American way of life, but to reclaim it, to make America great again. Some of the other fears were fears of cosmopolitanism, of socialism, treason, of intellectualism, and, you know, insert anything else here that seems pretty good, but was being associated with very negative qualities. And so certain political figures who were then associated with these ideals would be, could be demonized, especially with an emerging media machine that wanted to sell papers. And if they were able to put things on the front lines, on the front lines, on their headlines about American politicians being Satan's children or trying to destroy America or being part of the deep state or being part of an international cabal of secret financiers and bankers, then they could sell lots of newspapers. And so we could see the emergence then of, you know, there are many implications to this, But certainly we would see then how politics and its spectacle in the media came to be, came to emerge, how they came to grow alongside one another. So Roosevelt's New Deal was illustrated as being this communist plot, very much like how the Green New Deal was being, (laughs) was dragged through the mud a few years ago by the Republican Party. And without getting into the merits of those claims, the parallels are striking, at least these criticisms of the Green New Deal, mirroring those of the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal, and just the entire history of the American paranoid style. So for the paranoid spokesperson, doom is always around the corner because the world is reduced between absolute good and absolute evil. And everything that is not one with you, part of your values is seen as absolute evil and it's going to be in need of correcting going to be in need of or of eliminating which obviously welcomes some very scary possible ideas at least scary insofar as they can motivate violent action against other people that is if you repeatedly say that a type of people a group of people are like the devil's children are the worst people on earth and repeatedly say this on a large enough platform some large large swaths of people hear it of course bad things are going to happen and these people can just claim no responsibility because they didn't do it because freedom of speech can be used as a shield to defend against speech that is tacitly used to incite violence so because the other is views the absolute evil they must be opposed absolutely and if you do not participate in their opposition then you are on their side you are seen as being on their side now Hofstadter allocates a little bit of space to discuss another figure in all of this, who he calls the Renegade. And the Renegade is a figure who apparently left a secret group and then lived to tell the tale. So he provides a few examples of this, of people who had left these very apparently very oppressive groups, like one woman named Maria Monk who left the Catholic Church from, from Montreal actually left the Catholic Church there and wrote this book, this memoir called Awful Discourses, in which he laid out the hardship she'd experienced, the abuse she experienced and witnessed within the Catholic Church. And this was used as a way to justify anger and violence against Catholics. There's an obsession among such people to accumulate as many facts as possible. And this is often used as a way to compensate for a lack of cohesion among those facts. And if anyone has seen the movie JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, you'd know exactly what I mean. Uh, so for those of you that haven't seen it, I'll just briefly explain. That movie goes through what feels like 10,000 different possible explanations for what happened to JFK and implicates so many people with so many varying interests that it's, it's almost impossible to follow. And this is something you might see if you ever dipped into those strange parts of the internet with conspiracy theories is that They just inundate you with facts. And that is a very clever strategy to leave it up then to the viewer, or the reader, or whatever, to make up the story themselves. They've been nudged a little bit in the way that the facts are told and presented. I mean, there is an overarching idea here, like with Oliver Stone's JFK, that is that JFK wasn't killed only by Lee Harvey Oswald. So that is the point you must arrive at. And you are given all of these breadcrumbs to get there, And you can get there. But the process by which you got there has been clouded by the very fact that you are so committed to arriving at that conclusion that if you were to actually look back at the steps you took to get there, you'd find that the ground you were on was not very stable. It was probably very flimsy. And if somebody had come along or somebody comes along and knocks over some of the support beams holding you up on your flimsy stand, then it's revealed that maybe the argument wasn't quite as airtight as you might have thought. But on first glance, it doesn't look like that because there are just so many facts. You're just presenting so many facts, and then you are able to attribute almost any narrative you want to those facts. So the paranoid person belonging to the paranoid style reduces very complicated phenomena to very easily digestible facts that can really help make sense of the world. And there is something appealing to that. I mean, the world is quite chaotic, it is kind of comforting to know that there's some intent behind it, there's a design. There are people doing things that can explain why I'm poor or can explain why I'm experiencing oppression. And that can make it really easy to understand the world. And so Hofstadter suggests that the person, the paranoid person belonging to the paranoid style undergoes a kind of double oppression. Insofar as we are all sufferers from history, uh, you know he he is making a very generalizing claim here some people benefit quite a bit from history but he suggests we are all sufferers from history but the paranoid person is a double sufferer because they are subject and victim to their own fantasies that make them scared of everyone that make it hard for them to develop relationships that isolate them from their friends and family in favor of these ideas that isolate them from everyone else and it can be a very hard thing to take someone out of, because if they believe, if they really believe that people are out to get them, it's going to be hard to reintegrate them back into society, because then they're vulnerable. They're going to be vulnerable in those spaces. And yeah, that's uh, Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style of American Politics. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. If you didn't like what I did, you can leave a bad review. You always have that option. You'll make me feel horrible, but you can do it. Catch you in a few weeks when I get back with some Foucault lectures. Till then, take care.